Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. It's good to be here amongst the Lord's people in His presence this morning, and we welcome each and every one of you here. And uh, it's a lot of excitement going on, getting ready for tonight's Christmas program. And uh, we just hope that all the mechanics of the things that the children are learning and all the steps that they're going through will do more than just be an outward walking through of words, but will find room in their heart, right? Well, if you'll join with me this morning, we're going to take a look, uh, first of all, in the book of Leviticus. And then we're going to go to the New Testament to look at where these particular activities were fulfilled and what they mean for you and me. And uh, for those of you who have not been here before, we have been traveling uh, through some of the history of the Old Testament, and right now we are in the section in Leviticus, which really is a set of instructions for the Levites as they were to function as those who would minister to God on behalf of the people. And there were certain offerings that they were taught to be able to, to, to offer up to God, sometimes to cover sin, sometimes to be uh, just a sweet-smelling aroma of pleasing to the Lord as people brought gifts and offerings to Him. And there is also an explanation, as we'll see here in Leviticus 23, of some of the, the religious feasts that God established. And there were seven of them that God gave them in the Mosaic Law that they practiced. And each of them have their uh, symbolic meaning and their uh, 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 picturing of God's future work in the nation of Israel, as well as his work today in the church and um, uh, we're not going to be able to cover all those applications today, but we hope to gain some help in our own personal lives as we look at this today. While you're turning to Leviticus 23, to start with this morning, I'd like to tell you a story after we go before the Lord in prayer, shall we? Oh God, our Father, we want to say thank you this morning. Thank you for finding a way to somehow not just uh, compensate for our weakness and our failings, but to absolutely address the very uh, uh, problem, uh, ramifications, penalties, and uh, everything that we have failed in, you have surpassed in your grace to, to, to undo, to set right, and to even advance and to give us greater blessings and glory than we can ever have hoped for. And uh, truly, we would just this morning pronounce your greatness and give our thanks for what you have done in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are celebrating in this season, you sent him into the world as a gift to mankind. Not as something we earned, not as something we deserve, but a gift. And for all who will receive it, you will apply all the richness of him and his record and his work and his person to our very lives. And we give you thanks this morning. We just want to ask, Lord, that you would... Work in our midst to help us to get a taste of these truths, that you would draw us closer to yourself, that you would enable us to truly appreciate the Lord Jesus and, and be co-laborers, co-servants alongside of him as he worships before you, as he works in this world, that we might be not only the, the beneficiaries, but also... Uh, uh, be blessed to, to be uh, the, the servants that you would use to, the, as conduits to bless others. So, Lord, we commit to you this time. I know that some of these topics are vast, and uh, it would be easy to only scratch the surface and not correctly and clearly communicate 
the truths that you would seek to apply to us today. So I ask for your help, that you would compensate even now for my own weakness, and uh, 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 that your Holy Spirit would have liberty to speak to each of us today. For the honor and glory of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. There's a story in the Pilgrim's Progress of a part of the journey where Pilgrim uh, is on his way to the cross. And he's come to realize that the only way that he can have this burden of sin on his back removed is to come uh, uh, to Jesus Christ. And whereas the gate would picture the person of Jesus Christ, the cross reminds us of his work. And it's only through the person and work of Jesus Christ that our sins can be forgiven. And to help him understand this, as he's come to the gate and, and hel- uh, um, uh, uh, he's, been, he's been let in and he's been directed to the cross, that he's instructed to go to the interpreter's house who will make known to him the things that he will need to understand for his journey. And as he reaches the interpreter's house, he takes him from room to room and shows him some very interesting principles from Scripture. The one I'm thinking of this morning takes place in a room called the Dusty Parlor. And in this room, he looks in, and the master of the house calls out a servant to sweep the dust off the floor. And as he comes and he begins to sweep, the more he sweeps, the more the dust is stirred up in the room to the point where all of them in the room begin to choke. And so finally, the master of the house has him stop and cease, and the dust settles once again. And then he calls for a young maiden with a basin of water, and she reaches in and she sprinkles water onto the dusty floor. And after she goes throughout the room and she sprinkles the water on the floor, he asks for the room to be swept again. And this time it's different. This time with ease, the water is arrested by the wall, excuse me, the dust is arrested by the water that was sprinkled on the floor, and the dust is easily gathered together and collected into the dustpan and, and removed. And the whole picture here in this story is to show the difference between the workings of the law and the workings of the grace of God in the heart of man. See, because God gave the law and there was nothing wrong with it, but as people tried to use it to clean up our hearts and their lives, they discovered that it only choked them, bringing to them the realization of all the sin and the dirt and the filth that's really in their hearts. So the more that they would try, the more that it would discourage and frustrate until finally they come to the place where the grace of God can be applied. And in His grace, He is the one who has the power to arrest the power of sin in the heart of a man. And as we rely on His grace, He is able then to sweep away the sin and its power in our lives so that without choking, we can be set free. This is, in story form, from John Bunyan, what I believe the picture is for us in Leviticus concerning the religious feast that God established called the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. It was considered by the Jews to be their highest holy day because atonement for their sins was to take place, a covering for their sins so they could remain in fellowship with God and stay close to Him. But it wasn't perfect. It didn't fully do the job. And there was, just as the room filled with dust, a frustration for them because they couldn't quite see the fullness of that work in their lives. But we today live in the day of God's grace in a special way that so far surpasses what they experienced that we need to understand the lesson here. 
So if you're with me in Leviticus 23, let's begin reading then in verse 26 through verse 32. And it reads, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So this is just the introductory summary of the day. Suffice it to say that God instructed them that this was his feast that he established, right? This is the feast of the Lord that he said. And he said, here's the day that you're going to do it, the 10th day of the month, of the seventh month of the year. And he said, on this particular day, whatever day of the week it happens to fall on, it's going to be a Sabbath for you. And the Sabbath was a ceasing from work so that they could rest. And according to the Mosaic Law, every Saturday, the seventh day of the week, they had a Sabbath. But this, no matter what day it fell, was to be a day with no work. And so he said, every single person shall cease. He said, you shall do no work. Now, that's interesting. You say, well, um, hmm. What if they need to eat? Well, he said, you do no work. It was, I believe, the only day that God actually commanded a fast for his people. He did not want them doing any work at all. On some days, he said, you shall do no other customary work. You know, you're not going to work in the jobs and do those things. But it wasn't like this where it was a fast commanded. He didn't want them doing anything except to afflict their souls. That they would ponder the weight of the sin that was in their hearts. Because you see, the Bible says, as we try to approach God, it's not because God can't hear us. It's not that he can't answer our prayers, but our sin has separated us from God. And they were, they were to feel that this day. You say, well, Dave, well, I thought that if a person sinned, that they were to, to bring a, a sin offering and, and, and go to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice it any day of the year, any day of the week, so that, so that that sin could be covered and they could be restored to fellowship with God. Well, that's correct. But as you and I both know, Sometimes we become aware of ways that we have sinned and displeased God after we do them. Maybe we hadn't even intended to do what we did, but we realize after the fact that we have sinned. And God made a way for them on those occasions to bring a sacrifice that their sin could be covered or atoned. But what about the sins that they never even realized that they did? They hadn't brought anything for atoning for those sins. So once a year, God said, I want everyone to gather around. I want you to stop all of your work. And the high priest, well, I'm getting ahead of myself as far as the instruction, but he said, I'm going to make atonement for your sins apart from anything that you can do, even the sins that you're not even aware of, so that they are not something that hinders you and your relationship to God. And so they had this special day once a year. And the interesting thing to me is he says, I want you to afflict your souls on this day. 
And yet notice what it said in verse 32. It's going to be a Sabbath of solemn rest. You will afflict your souls on the ninth day at evening until the tenth day at evening, and you shall celebrate your Sabbath. That seems almost contradictory to me. How do I celebrate my Sabbath while I afflict my soul? Well, see, something was going to happen between that evening and the next evening. As they were reminded of their sin and of their separation from God because of their sin, even without them doing anything, they could rest in the work of their high priest who was going to go in to make that atonement for them. So that's kind of the, the summary description. How does it actually take place? Leviticus 16, if you'll turn a few chapters to your left, tells us, okay, this is the general uh, 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 summary, but now we're going to look at the prescription for how it was going to be carried, carried out. And uh, I tried to alliterate some of my thoughts this morning, but they just weren't coming together. Uh, so if you'll bear with me, they, they won't be perfectly in a set of Ps, but um, first of all, Leviticus 16, starting in verse 1, says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the, day, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord, and they died. If you recall, two weeks ago, in chapter 10 of Leviticus, Moses' two sons went before the Lord, not in a way prescribed by God, and it says they tried to offer what he called profane fire, and God slew them right there in the tabernacle. And they had to send someone else to come in and drag them out. So God says, listen, after that, the Lord, verse 2, says to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in just at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the holy linen trousers on his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired as these are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. Now, to come back to our visual, all right? This is the tabernacle in the wilderness as God gave prescription to Moses to be able to uh, construct. And in the middle of that courtyard, all right, here was the courtyard. In the middle of it was this tent, and they couldn't see through all those skin coverings of the tent. But this is where the high priest was going to go to do business with God and to meet with him. And there were two compartments in there. We're going to come back to that as we especially look at the New Testament and and how this pictures what Jesus did for us in heaven. All right. But in there were some various pieces of furniture, which we've gone over before. And as you see in those two places, there is the Ark of the Covenant here in the second room where the glory of God dwelt. And he said, you shall not just come at any time into there or in any old way. Here's the way. And the first thing he tells them is, I want you to take aside all of your garments of glory and beauty. And I want you to put on these linen clothes. And so he instructs him how to prepare. He had to be prepared himself by washing and with the ceremonial putting on of these white linen garments. And they picture for us the purity, the cleanness that was necessary for the one to come in to do this atonement. It wasn't a job of just marching in and everyone being wowed by your beauty. No, purity was the order of the day. And so he would put on these special clothes. Then he says, you shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. 
And then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat, which is the Lord's lot, to which the Lord's lot fell and offered as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Um, okay, so there, there's yet an, again another summary. In his preparations, he was supposed to put on these white garments, and then he was to gather and bring before the Lord a bull, which was meant to be a sin offering for himself, and then another ram, and then for the peat, that was for himself uh, as a burnt offering later, and then for the people's sake, who were all to be outside waiting for him to do this work, not doing any work, right, themselves, he was to gather two goats to represent the, the, the people and their sin, one, he was going to cast lots, and it was going to be designated as for the Lord, and the other would be set aside later as the scapegoat to bear away the sins of the people. Once he got all this together, then he was ready. So all that was mere preparation, making sure that he was clean and pure himself and that the sacrifice was ready. Then the day could commence. And so at this point, it says... Verse 11, and Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Interesting. See, the bull was the most expensive animal that was to be offered before the Lord. And the high priest, the one who was going to go in to make atonement for himself and for everyone else, that highest price had to be paid. And he would kill it, which was the instructions for the sin offering, and then he was supposed to gather some of the blood from that bull. And at the same time, it says, verse 12, he was to take a censer, like, like a little pot, full of burning coals of fire from the altar that was before the Lord, which is where that sin offering was offered up, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. Now, here's the time. Before... He was outside. The people could see this. He brought all of it together. He was dressed in the white robes. But now, he went inside the veil, carrying the blood of the bull and the censer with a handful of incense. And he would go. And as he went inside, he would come all the way to the back of that first sanctuary where the, in, the altar of incense was. And, and it was already burning the incense that would go before God. But, but this wasn't enough on this day. It says now that he was to take that incense of fire, verse 13, to bring it inside the veil. He's going to go inside this special veil. Only once a year. This is the only time of year he's going to come inside here. And so, verse 13, he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Because the glory of God was there. Because there in the ark was the Ten Commandments the budded rod of Aaron, the bowl of manna. It represented the perfection of God himself. And to enter into his presence as a sinner would mean certain death. But, but as he would come on this day, God gave him permission to, to push aside that veil and he was to put this censer between the two poles there on the side of the ark. And then when he dropped the incense on it, it would puff into this huge cloud of smoke. Somewhat as a, 
a, a, a request to draw near and as a covering for himself so that God would not behold his sinfulness as ceremonially, as ceremonially pure as he could possibly be. And when that cloud would, would come up before the Lord, it says, verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat there on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he was to sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he would go back out. See, it said this was the sin offering for himself and for his family. He couldn't yet come in because of all the sin of the people. He had to make sure that his own sin was atoned for. And so there was a sin offering for himself. And he would come in and apply the blood there on the mercy seat so that God could show him that mercy. So he himself had been atoned, his own sin covered. And then he would go back outside. And then it says he would take, verse 15, some of the, the goat. And he would kill that goat as a sin offering for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. And he would do with that blood just as he had done with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat those seven times. And so he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions and for all their sins. And he shall do for the tabernacle, so shall he do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So it would take a, 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 an offering to cover the sin of the priest as well as the people, sprinkled there on the altar so that the very place where they could worship God could be atoned and, this, and sinfulness covered so that God could continue to dwell with them. This is the mystery of the whole thing. Think about this. God was the one who told him how to build the tabernacle. He said, I would dwell amongst my people. I want you to come to worship me. And at the same time, here was this veil that said, you can't come any closer. Even while they fulfilled all the rituals that he gave them, he said, no, there's still only so far that you can come. And even when you've done all the sacrifices, there yet remains the need for further covering. And so every year when they did this, the tabernacle itself would be cleansed and, 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 and a covering given there for the sinfulness of the people so that God could remain to dwell amongst them and they could continue to draw even at that distance into the presence of God. And so he said in verse 17, no man shall be in the tabernacle of meeting when the high priest goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. No work done. Only the high priest was doing the work. And then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times on the top of that altar and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Then when he made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So now, <clears throat> he's cleansed the very place where he was to make this sacrifice. His own sin had been now covered. And now on behalf of the people, an offering was made for their sin and, and, and the place prepared. But now there was another offering that had to take place. And it says he would come and he would take the goat. The, 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 cat, the lot had been cast and it said this is the one for the Lord. And he would bring it in and it says here. I'm sorry, the one goat had already been killed, right? So this sin offering for the people had two parts. The one that was for the Lord was sacrificed so the covering could be made for their sin. But now... He says, you go back and get the live goat. And out in front of all the people, he would lay 
his hands on its head and says, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Where does that sin go when it's covered, right? Well, God would then take it and place it all on the, on the head of this goat and send it away. <clears throat> now, the people knew this had to happen, <clears throat> but I don't know that they knew the full significance of what it was picturing. We now realize it was a picture of the work of Christ who would come later and go into not an earthly tabernacle, but a heavenly one to forgive our sins. And all these things picture the work that he would do. It says, then when he was done, verse 23, Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he'd put on when he went into the holy place and leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat of the scapegoat needs to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come back into the camp. The bull for the sin offering, the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. They shall burn it in the fire with the skins and the flesh and their offal. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe in his body in water. And afterward, he may come back into the camp. So this shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month, tenth day. You shall afflict your souls and do no work on that day, whether a native of your own country or stranger who lives amongst you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. <clears throat> now, how does this picture for you and for me the work of Jesus Christ? Yes, it's nice to know that there is this historical lesson in the old days when, when the Jews would have these feasts. But, so what? Does it really mean anything to you and to me. Well, you know, the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about that. <clears throat> and we're going to take a look today, while we have time, for as much of the surface that we can scratch as to the meaning of how Jesus fulfilled this. For what the writer of Hebrews would say is, <clears throat> is that this work that the priest was doing was what Jesus was doing for you and me when he came into this world to save us from our sin. Now, the interesting thing, first of all, to me is this. When Jesus came into the world and they were practicing this whole feast yearly, the word that was used for this whole process was called atonement, which I think I've already said this, this afternoon, means a covering, right? Just like when I was teaching school. I don't even know if they use this anymore, right? We make lots of mistakes on our papers. And sometimes I'd get papers with white out on them. Right? Now, a person who's writing who makes a mistake on the piece of paper says, mm, that's not right. And they don't want anyone to see that mistake that they made. So what do they do? What do we do? We get out some white out and we paint over it. And as you look at that paper, you say, Oh, it looks pretty clean. It looks pretty nice. But if you really knew what was on that paper, and if you inspected closely and you turn it over on the back, especially, right, you can see the blot. You can see the mistakes, the blemishes that were written on the paper. Atonement was like whiteout, a covering for sin. Especially when you consider 
what God chose to be the means of this atonement, the blood of goats and calves. Now, <clears throat> I liked math when I was growing up, and there was a principle that they taught us called the law of substitution. That said, any time that A equals B, whenever I see A, I can substitute B, and I've still got a, a, a true equation, right? And so in the presence of God, as he looks at our record, whenever he sees a man... And he sees that record. This man is guilty. He has sinned. God said, okay, you know what? The penalty for that sin is death. I'm going to take this lamb and I'm going to sacrifice it as a covering for that sin. And that's what it was. It covered the sin. So that, go back all the way to the beginning. Adam and Eve, they had sinned. They deserved to die. And yet God made animal skin clothings for them. He made a covering for them from the sacrifice of that lamb. And all through the Bible, that's what we see in these sacrifices, coverings for sin, coverings for sin. But it was temporary. And Romans chapter 3 says, was it right or wrong for God to be able to, to not really have judged that sin by accepting those sacrifices all those years? Well, it was. Because it tells us in Romans chapter 3 that God set forth Jesus as a true propitiation, the satisfying of the debt and of the wrath of God by his blood through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness because it was in the forbearance of God that he passed over the sins that were previously committed so that now when Christ came, he could demonstrate at the present time his righteousness and that he might be just and the one who declares as just, the one who has faith in Jesus. He said Jesus truly did pay for that debt. And so God had kind of chosen to let that be like whiteout covering the blemish of sin on those hearts until the true payment could come. But in Christ, it was fully paid. And now, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No longer just a covering, but to fully remove sin, its consequences, its power from the life of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's what the Bible declares. And so when John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that was, that's what he was saying, is that now there was one who was going to come who would make it possible for sin truly not just to be covered, but to be removed. And when Jesus went to the cross and he died, his death on the cross as the Lamb of God was the sin offering for you and for me. But better than that, not just staying dead, when he raised from the dead and came back out of the tomb, it was like the priest who returned before the people and said, the sacrifice was accepted. And now here, he takes the live goat and he lays the sin upon that goat and he sends it away into the wilderness. The Bible says that's what Jesus did with our sin. He himself, as the scapegoat, would take our sin and bear it away, never to be found again or placed at our account. And I looked at several references. It's beautiful the way the Bible describes for us the work of Jesus Christ for our sin. It tells us in Isaiah 38 that he put our sin behind his back. In Micah 7, it says it's in the depths of the sea. In Psalm 103, it's as far as the east is from the west. In Isaiah 44, it's been blotted out. And in Hebrews 8, he says, I will remember your sin no more. As that goat would leave the camp, never to be seen again, God takes the sin of, a, of each and every one of us sinners who puts our trust in Christ, letting the death of Christ be our atonement, if you will, but then taking our sin far, far away, never to be brought against us in God's court ever, ever again. 
But that's salvation. If you here today have come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, knowing that he died for you on the cross, and just as all those people out there were remembering their sins as the hands were laid on the goat and the sin transferred to that goat as it was offered for, you, for the sinner. When we come to Christ and confess our need for him, say, I'm a sinner who deserves death, but I know that Jesus came to die for my sins, to pay the full penalty, to take them away, never to be seen again. We have that full forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But my friends, I would say to you, this is just the beginning of the work of Christ for you and for me, right? I love this passage in Romans 5. It says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that means declared righteous by God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But it goes on, comma. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I like the New American Standard that says we have an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Jesus said he was the door. We enter through the door into a new place. Unfortunately, we as Christians oftentimes simply we, we talk about Christ and how he paid for the penalty of our sins and therefore end of story once our sin is forgiven. And we hang out in the doorway, just like the people hung out in the courtyard outside while the work of their salvation, the priest, had entered in into the holy place. But what I see in the scriptures is that we have now been introduced into a new standing of grace that goes beyond that. Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> this is our hope, brothers and sisters. And, and if, if anyone here is someone who's never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me just say your sin is still upon you and you need to come to Christ. But see, in these days in the New Testament, when, when the Hebrews who were practicing these things were suddenly starting to suffer persecution, they were tempted to leave Christ and go back to the Old Testament practice. And this writer is saying, you don't want to do that. The practice of the law was inferior to what Christ has done in many ways. And that's what the whole book is about. And he's, he talks about the greatness of Christ over the angels, over Moses, over the high priest. And, and he's continuing this argument now. Chapter 7 highlights the, the, great, the greater greatness of Jesus Christ as our high priest than the high priest that Aaron was. Because, you see, as pictured in the sacrifices we had today, he had to go in to make sacrifices for himself because he was a sinner. But our high priest, who goes into a tabernacle, a, a sanctuary, a holy place, not made with hands, but the one that this one pictures in the true realms of heaven... He doesn't need to make sacrifice for his own sins. He is the Holy One, harmless, undefiled, separate from sin. And when he went in, he didn't bring a sacrifice for himself. He simply went as a sacrifice for you and for me. And so he is a greater high priest. And not only that, he's from a, a totally different order of high priest. The, the Aaron's priests, they became priests simply because they were born into the right family. But they were only priests. Melchizedek, which is the, the beginning of the priesthood that Jesus is a part of by the command of God the Father. He says, you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who was not only priest, but a king of peace. And so Jesus is now a different kind of high priest. He's a king priest. And 
He doesn't just go into an earthly tabernacle. He goes into a heavenly sanctuary in the presence of God. And so in chapter 7, it says, we've got a greater high priest. But when you have a new high priest, you have a changing of the law. And so the old law, the old covenant that they operated under, he says, that's not good enough anymore. This high priest has a new covenant. And we read about it here in chapter, okay, sorry, chapter 8 of Hebrews says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So now when he says it's a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete, right? So he says, the old covenant, God instituted it, but it wasn't good enough. We see some of the ways in which it wasn't good enough. But this high priest, he now is of a totally different order. And he operates under a totally different covenant. And he's going into a holy place of a totally different kind. The one that's in heaven, the true sanctuary God says the one on earth was just a picture and so now in chapter 9 he wants to highlight for us the greatness of this work that he did in atoning for our sins right now notice verse 8 this is interesting it's just the whole when sorry we'll go back to verse 7 but into the second part speaking of the Old Testament Sanctuary, right? Into the second part, the high priest alone went once a year and not without blood when he offered, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. The Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament tabernacle to communicate something to you and to me. The way into the holiest of all was not yet available just for a small temporary peak the high priest could come in but the holy spirit was indicating that the holiest was not yet made manifest but chapter 10 tells us when our high priest went into the true tabernacle with his own blood for sacrifice verse 14 for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, I will put my laws in their hearts and their minds. I will write them. And he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Therefore, where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. He says, finally, with this new covenant, when the new high priest enters in of a totally different order in a different tabernacle, uh, the, the heavenly holy place, there's now no more offering for sin. No more needs to be offered. His sacrifice is superior. Not every year, not every day. Done. So now we're back to the so what. Therefore, brethren, verse 19, 10, 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Do you see the difference? He says, if you know Jesus Christ, you have been granted access beyond where people's eyes can see to go into the place, not just to serve as the, you know, listen, there was a group of priests who would go in into that first sanctuary and cut the wicks and they would minister there. They had a divine service, it says, right? I think that's chapter Chapter 9, verse 1 says, In the first covenant, there was an ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. There was a realm of service. And you know what, brothers and sisters, as we have our sin forgiven, we have a realm of service for the Lord. We can actually, as his priests, go in and serve him like we never could before. Not just standing outside wondering, will our sins be forgiven? They are forgiven. He's given us a realm of service. But what he's saying is, beyond that, there is a place where we can come into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus with a new and living way since his blood, it says through the veil, that is his flesh, when his body was, was crushed there on the cross. Literally, we read that there was an earthquake and the veil was torn, showing everyone, listen, I want you to have access to the holiest of all if you'll come in. Brothers and sisters, what I would like to declare to you today is that God wants us to draw near. The sin that separates us from God has been completely dealt with. One of the things that he talks about in this passage is the inferiority of the sacrifices. Those animal sacrifices were not, I don't even think I finished my illustration, right? But an animal is not equal to a man. The problem is any other man is still a sinner. And so it took God the Son of God, to leave the garments of His glory and beauty in heaven and to put on the pure robes, but yet uh, as of a man, the common flesh of a man that He can go into as our high priest to represent us. And so when the Son of God, the God-man, died on the cross, truly a substitute was finally found. And now when He by the sacrifice of himself, tore that veil. He's invited us to come in. Not just, now, what, what was the covenant? The covenant said, going back to 810 to read it, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. We are invited in Romans chapter 12 to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service of worship, and to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God would now like to write the law of Christ on our hearts. Not so that we can read through and say, here's another command to do, here's another command to do, and like that person trying to sweep the dust in our hearts to get rid of it by the law. No. We accept, he says, no one shall work on the day of atonement. It's the work of the whole, of the high priest. And Christ as our high priest has done the work. Not only for our erasing of the penalty of our sins, but for the cleansing of our hearts. That's the sprinkling of the blood of Christ on the priest to cleanse us. And so we, by faith, enter into this grace in which we stand. We enter into the freedom from that sin. We enter into the release from all those things that keep us separated so that we can draw near as close as the very 
throne of God. Like Martha, sometimes we get so busy trying to do, 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 do. We're so distracted in our doing, even our service for the Lord. That's the remarkable thing about that story to me. Martha was not just out there getting caught up in earthly things. She was trying to prepare a meal for the Lord. But the Lord rebuked her because she was distracted in her serving so that she was not where she should have been. Here's Mary. She's doing the one necessary thing. That's the words of the Lord Jesus. Only one thing is necessary, and that's what Mary's doing. Seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Having her mind and heart transformed. And as a living sacrifice, as he transforms us, says that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He transforms us by a work of grace that he does as we present ourselves to him in his presence. But you know what? It's not going to happen by our running around and serving. I praise God for all the things the Lord is doing here in our midst. We are a busy priesthood. But let us not be too busy. that we fail to enter. This is the blessing and the hope that Christ died for so that we can draw near into his presence. Not only does it say he will write his law on our hearts, but look what else it says. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is a privilege for all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ to come into the very presence of God in the heavenly holiest of all. Now, that doesn't mean we have to cancel our job and stay home all day in our prayer closet. Jesus gave us another illustration where he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bring forth fruit. This intimacy of being connected with Christ, no matter what we do, no matter where we go, as his life flows into me and as I let it flow into me and out of me, it bears fruit. As I place myself in the place where, where, where I say, okay, I'm yours, Lord, and I'm, I'm, I want to come in. Now, the interesting thing is, and, and we don't have time to develop this, but it tells us here in chapter uh, nine, it says that he is, forgive me, no, Chapter 8, it says that he is the minister of the sanctuary. And it also tells me in verse 6 that he's the mediator of the new covenant. As a minister in the sanctuary, he's the one who's gone in and cleansed the sin, cleansed the, the way so that I can come in. But now he says, as a mediator of the new covenant, he is the one who is the very means by which he makes this new covenant take place in my heart. So he's, he prepares the place. He's made the way open. That's why he's called the forerunner. He goes into the high, to, the, to that true sanctuary first so that we can follow him. He wants us to come. But how do we come? I'm still a sinner. I still fail him day by day. Well, as the mediator of the covenant, you know what he does? As I come into that first room, I love this. The first room in that tabernacle. Again, you can't be seen by the world. It's in our hearts. In that true sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, as we come in there, the light from the candlestick shines on me, revealing my sin, revealing where those wicks need to be trimmed, the various areas of my heart 
where, where it's, it's not pleasing to the Lord. And he says, trim this away. Take care of this. And as I confess those things before him, not that I need to go get saved again, not that I need uh, to, right there, he cleanses. We feed on Christ, the bread of the show bread on the table. We come before him and our prayers then ascend as a sweet smelling aroma to God from that altar of incense as we then go through that torn veil to the presence of God. We can't just enter haphazardly. We learn that from Nadab and Abihu who was slain. We won't be slain, but we won't be able to truly draw near. Would you draw near? It's an act of faith. This chapter is going to lead us then, chapter 10, where it talks about this great sacrifice, this new and living way. How do we stay there? Well, the, it's by faith. And chapter 11 is full of those who never really attained the fullness of the promises that were given them, but they received them by faith. And they were guided by God along in their journey of faith with him in this life. I would submit to you then, this is what God has called us to, to draw near into the true holiest of all. It's not, a thing, it's not something we can manufacture. It's a gift we receive. And so how do we do that? We've got to spend time with him. We've got to read his word. We've got to be quiet before him so that he can speak to us and, and reveal to us the sin that we forgot and didn't realize was there, that we can confess and be clean like Christ, that he can transform us. And as we're there, here's the beautiful thing. The priest didn't just stay in there. He went in there first and was blessed in the presence of God, but then he, what? he came out to the people. And you know what? As we go in before God and we come out to our family, to our friends, to those around us, we will still have on us the aroma of Christ, and we will have something to offer. An apple tree doesn't bear fruit for itself. It bears fruit to be shared with others. And God wants to produce the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruitfulness in our work for the gospel. All these things are a gift from him as we walk in his grace. The question is, first of all, do we desire to enter in? Have you entered in? You can. If you know the Lord is your Savior, he's inviting you. Draw near with boldness, with sincerity of heart. And he will meet us there. Father, we thank you for this picture. It is just a picture. It must have been so tedious for these priests Year after year after year, smelling the smoke, slaying the animal, sprinkling the blood, all still, never able to fully remove and cleanse the heart and the conscience and having to do it again and again. But oh, the patience that you showed over the centuries to be able to wait for your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ to come, that he can not only legally put away the sin, but beyond that, Prepare the way as our forerunner to let us follow behind him into the very holiest of all. Lord, would you please save us from a fruitless and barren life of running around offering outward service. But give us an intimacy in the holiest of all with yourself that will so overflow into our daily lives that you will produce fruit through us even when we don't even realize it. And we will be blessed. Those around us will be blessed. And the name of Jesus Christ exalted and your work continue in this world. Oh Lord, we look forward to the day where we can see our Savior face to face. Just like those people who waited for the high priest to come out of the sanctuary, we wait for him to return to bring us forever to be with himself. 
So, Lord, help us to fix this hope within us in such a way that we will truly draw near. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.